Congress is still a couple of weeks away from returning to Washington. Still, pressure is building for members to resolve a difficult budget impasse as the prospects for a lapse in appropriations also seem to grow. We get more now from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. An absence, I guess, makes their hearts grow fonder. And the debates are, in some level, continuing here on what they will do about the budget, correct? That is correct. I mean, people have spread out around the country, around the world, if they're going on congressional delegations or CODELs. But there are still discussions happening behind the scenes, over email, over conference calls, about what to do with the budget impasse that you mentioned. Um, We have two chambers that are heading in somewhat different directions here. We have the addition of the supplemental funding request that President Biden sent up a couple weeks ago. And we have the normal give and take that you need to have before the September 30th deadline to act on something that's all feeding together into this mix right now. Um, So there are questions about what can be done before the October 1st start of fiscal 2024. And the Senate, if I'm correct, comes back a little bit sooner than the House, but they both kind of have to be here to vote on things. And so there are very few days in the legislative calendar when they do return to get this done. That's correct. We have the Senate coming back right now, September 5th, and then the House September 12th, a week later. So they'll be back after Labor Day and kick this off. Now, there may be enough House members in town that first week to have discussions with their Senate counterparts. We've seen leaders from both chambers talk already about the need for a continuing resolution to keep things funded after September 30th. So we've seen those discussions. But you're right, whatever they come to agreement on, they have to be back here and they have to vote and they have to get it through both chambers, which, you know, given the types of opposition they might face, won't necessarily be a foregone conclusion until they see what they have to vote on. And there's some funny math going on in the House because you have one coalition there that is sort of against everything, you might say, and they could subtract enough votes out of the Republican bloc that require a certain number of Democrats to agree to something. So there's almost like three parties in some sense operating in the House. That's right. And we saw that earlier this year on something like the debt limit agreement that Speaker McCarthy reached with President Biden, where they needed Democratic support to get that over the line and a lot of Democratic support. It may be a little easier sell to keep the government running while they continue to have the debates they want to have, but people might want to extract something out of that vote. So yes, we'll vote to keep the government open if you give us something. So those are the kind of negotiations that we'll see go on. A lot of this stems back to the spending caps that were put in place by that debt limit agreement. The House Republicans want to spend less than that. They see that as a ceiling, not a floor. The Senate Democrats and Republicans together have produced bills that would spend up to that. And then they're talking about spending more through a supplemental. So that's where this has gotten difficult, is that people think that the deal they negotiated isn't still in place. But as we saw right after those spending caps were announced, there were talks about, well, we might need a supplemental for Ukraine. And now clearly there's some needs for disasters, including the fires in Hawaii that people are going to have to think how to address when they get back. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan. He is deputy news director at Bloomberg Government. And the NDAAs, there was kind of an impasse there, too. Any progress happening in the last couple of weeks? Any private talks? Or is that going to be last minute also? And as we know, that one they like to get done in the calendar year. Right. That's further along than spending because the House and the Senate have at least both passed their own versions of it that they can take to an eventual conference agreement. I wouldn't be surprised if there's been some behind the scenes discussions about that. The dynamic in that bill, though, is that the House adopted 
a number of amendments dealing with social issues, whether it's DOD abortion policy, things about DEI programs, CRT, critical race theory being taught in DOD schools. And those are provisions that are absent from the Senate bill. So that's a reconciliation process that's going to take a little bit of time between those bills. But the big picture defense authorization number is pretty close. And then I think there's a deal to be made on the numbers, but then it's going to come down to what other language rides along for the final version of that. And as you say, that's not a September 30th problem as much as a December 31st problem, but it is something that lawmakers would like to make progress on and get done if they can. Because there's plenty of break time between September 30th and December 31st, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas, et cetera. So it's not like there's loads of time for any of this. No, there's not. And there's other priorities, too, like an FAA bill and a farm bill reauthorization that they'll want to do this fall, plus the other you know, kind of cats and dogs legislation that's out there that they're going to have to address, whether it's deadline driven or just a priority that they'd like to get accomplished. Yeah. What's the issue with FAA authorization? What is holding that up? I don't think there's any major policy things that we're aware of. The House has passed a version of that bill, pretty bipartisan, and the Senate committee has been stalled for a little bit. There were some disputes about pilot training hours and provisions like that that they were trying to work out behind the scenes. We heard some positive news toward the end of the session before they left for the recess. I could see that maybe getting through the Senate and then them picking up and doing that. That may be a provision that needs to be extended as part of a continuing resolution because there are some authorities the FAA needs to have in place that do expire and could have furlough implications just given the way that some of the programs are funded there. So we may still be talking about an extension in September of those programs, but that does seem like if the Senate committee can get moving, there is a deal to be had on that legislation. Any motion on the Tuberville hold on those military nominations, that seems to be really dug in deep. That is dug in deep. And as we saw last week, um, I think it was the third picture in the wall of Joint Chiefs of Staff personnel that was replaced by a blank frame for now because there are three members of that that are currently not in place. So there has been a lot of pressure over the recess, both from the president, from the defense secretary and others to try to make progress on this. Where the issue may be is what side jumps first and what sort of agreement can they make? Because, you know, there's a preservation of the right of any senator to hold up nominations. And Democrats have said they don't necessarily want to validate that strategy that Tuberville has by trying to force individual votes on all these. So they're kind of stuck for right now. But this is something I definitely think we'll be watching in the fall because there are some key positions that have vacancies right now. And what about telework? Because Congress is of a mind. I mean, the administration wants people back at work in federal offices. There's a lot of pushback coming from the unions which has made a couple of the agencies back down from plans they already announced. And then the White House chief of staff reinforced the request to get more in-person work, although they didn't specify full-time five days a week for everybody. And your boss of bosses up there at Bloomberg has been urging return to offices generally. So it's hard to know which way the tide is really going to end up here. And Congress could, if it chose, weigh in here. Congress could weigh in through these spending bills. And as you mentioned, Michael Bloomberg, who's the, the majority owner of our parent company, wrote a Washington Post op-ed calling for people at the federal government to come back downtown and go to work. They have been working remotely, obviously, but to fill the office space there. So this is a debate going on in businesses and associations across the country. And the federal government is part of this. Like you say, the Congress could weigh in. House Republicans, I think, have had some proposals on this in the past that they'd like to see a return to more in-office time. And there's pressure 
pressure from the executive branch to do the same. So the tide may be headed toward more in-office time for federal workers, but I'm not aware of anything today that they're looking to stick in a CR or something like that that would be immediate. But I do feel like the pressure is RTO return to office. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. Thanks so much. Thank you. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you when you're on leave. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always make sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy 
fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it. Okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we, and the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces, when they're fighting for a cause and, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this and I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast the vision. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, d describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest, here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's, it's easy. Yes, right? yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice, if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm, I'm going to have to elaborate on two, yeah, if that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency 
of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.